Welcome to Tyranny Today. We are recording it on March the 1st, 2023. If today is March the 1st, and it is not a leap year, then yesterday it was February 28th. And February 28th is a very painful date for all the Taiwanese people. In 1947, the Chinese army fired on Taiwanese demonstrators, and in the subsequent period of white terror, the Chinese occupiers murdered 30,000 Taiwanese civilians. To this day, this incident shapes Taiwanese people's perception of Chinese mainlanders, a topic to which we will certainly return one day. Now, however, February offers some other sad anniversaries. Last week, on the occasion of the first anniversary of the outbreak of the Third World War, we were served with yet another vote condemning Russia for its illegal invasion of Ukraine. I have to say that last week, a day before the vote, I was quite despondent. Swiss TV showed Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez trying to drum up support for the vote in front of a General Assembly hall, a couple of blocks from where I live, and the hall was half empty. It is hard to say if this was the result of overall war fatigue, of the complete lack of charisma of the Portuguese Secretary General, or maybe of a boycott by nations that are happy to tell the Russian-Chinese line. It was probably a combination of all the three. A year before, the shock of the invasion jolted even the most indifferent observers into various levels of alertness. Antonio Gutierrez does not really wield the power that one of his predecessors, Dag Hamarsjord, once deployed. But who has? Hamarsjord's hyperactivism led the organization to overreach in the Democratic Republic of Congo, thus showing limits to what the UN can do. His Nordic predecessor, Tegvelia, was considered an American pawn by the Soviets. Hamarsjord's successor, Utant, from Burma, had some qualified successes, as had uh, Peruvian Secretary Perez de Cuellar. Austrian Kurt Waldheim was controlled by Soviets who, unlike the CIA, were aware of his Nazi past all along, while Egyptian Boutros Boutros Ghali, labeled ironically in the halls of Geneva as Secretary, Secretary General, was outgrown even by the two major conflicts in the otherwise fondly remembered placid 1990s. Ghanaian Kofi Annan glid comfortably on the tail end of that era with the Millennium Development Goals, and Korean Ban Ki-moon oversaw the organization that elected to deal with more pedestrian or sometimes more long-term issues, like the UN reform, climate change, corporate responsibility, and even LGBT rights. And now this shock. Guterres wasn't ready for his world any more than the Greens in the German coalition. They're all doing their best in adjusting to this newly divided world. But the day after Guterres' speech, the actual vote didn't come as badly as I feared. The vote was 141 in favor of the resolution condemning Russia, 32 abstentions, and 7 against. The 7 votes against were not surprising. In addition to Russia, four of these countries have Russian troops on their soil, Syria, Eritrea, which is home to a Russian Navy base, Belarus, still notionally independent, but with about 20,000 Russian troops on its territory, and Mali, where Russia's Wagner Group has now edged out French troops. 
In addition to these four countries, North Korea voted against the resolution, but Pyongyang has always been a paragon of property, so probably nobody noticed. And then we have Daniel Ortega's Nicaragua. Ortega, the great survivor, managed to sell his country to China some two years ago and visibly needs to hedge the associated risks by currying favor with Lavrov. For us, Ortega earned his outcast status during the latest election cycle, which led to mass incarceration of opposition figures and dozens of extrajudicial killings in Nicaragua. Since then, the regime has tightened the screw, persecuting the Catholic Church, which, as many times before in Central America, is again standing up to the autocrats, a sadly recurrent theme in the extraordinarily violent history of this part of the world. By the way, on YouTube, you can watch the footage from the last great military parade in the former German Democratic Republic, an entity that we used to call in Switzerland Deutsche Dramatische Republik. It is from early 1989, and among the dignitaries standing next to Erich Heunecke and Fidel Castro and Nicolae Ceausescu or Yasser Arafat and some others, there is also the youthful Daniel Ortega Esquire. Interestingly, another China's vassal and fellow survivor from the previous Cold War, Hun Sen of Cambodia, voted in favor of the UN resolution last week. And that's quite interesting. As a young, energetic man, Hun Sen was initially Vietnam's stooge in the struggle against the Khmer Rouge, but he later managed to tweak his position and attract Chinese money to a country that is forever condemned to be dominated by either Vietnam or Thailand or China, and currently it is China. And this arrangement seems to give the vassal state some freedom, at least on issues outside China, such as Ukraine. It's the list of abstentions, however, that is probably more interesting than those that backed Russia. And here there are some disappointments for Russia, starting with China, Iran, and the defiant Kazakhstan, whose ruler knows what Ukraine's lost or Belarus's disappearance could mean for the territorial integrity of his huge country, the world's ninth largest by area. The more independent Uzbekistan, but also Kyrgyzstan, abstained too. Kyrgyzstan's sovereignty is not assured, given that the country's debt to China, which amounts to 30% of GDP, makes it the sixth largest in the world. And, quite unexpectedly, Cuba also abstained. Has Russia stopped importing sugar or what? Things are even less rosy for Moscow and Europe. All the usual fence-sitters, including Hungary, Serbia and Turkey, voted in favor of the resolution. So did various neutrals, including Brazil, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, but also Israel and Georgia. Georgia that the Kremlin has been trying to court, as well as Cyprus, hitherto a reliable offshore account for ill-gotten gains from east of Donbass. But an alarming 32 countries abstained, half of them in Africa. Last week, I dwelt quite a bit on the shameful case of South Africa, which is staging Navy maneuvers with Russia and China for the first anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. Maybe instead of posturing, Pretoria should pay more attention to its power generation crisis and mass load shedding, which, according to some, may further undermine the very fragile social fabric in the country. But there is more to the UN vote than South Africa, and I thought it would be useful to dive into the analysis of how the prevailing Russo-Chinese narrative successfully exploits human propensity for cognitive distortions. So, first, let us ask ourselves what cognitive distortions are. 
cognitive distortions of various mental filters that we commonly employ to deal with the complexity of informational environment. When used repeatedly, they appear in a form of a persistent bias to process incoming information. Once adopted, they are quite difficult to correct. We call them collectively distortions because they misguide us into believing something for which there is no definite proof. Some of these biases are of logical nature, as humans are not inherently logical machines. Others are built around the connection between the cognitive and emotional aspect of information processing. In other words, as we develop attachment to a specific way of functioning, and the outcome of the processing is judged adaptive, we continue to function this way and will defend this stance even in the face of disproving evidence. Oh, so I have not yet seen any Nazis in Ukraine? Well, I should just look a little harder. And how do we judge the outcome of such distorted belief formation as adaptive? For example, because the adopted filter allows us to make the incoming information fit another pre-existing component of our belief system. It's the confirmation bias. The whole process makes the use of cognitive resources more economic, and the resulting consonance is perceived as pleasant, as opposed to dissonance, which would be disorienting and sometimes not even comprehensible. For example, a left-wing progressive person who supports LGBT rights will find it incomprehensible that there are gays among, say, the neo-Nazis. In other cases, the confirmation bias could be socially sanctioned. We are social animals and we enjoy the company of those who agree with us. We feel safer this way and we feel validated. This is the magic of the social media eco-chambers, a phenomenon which exploded over the last decade. And of course, it leads to groupthink, which is really bad for institutional decision-making, something that dictators such as Putin or Xi Jinping tend to forget about when they consolidate power successfully and then make one mistake after another. So just to repeat, some cognitive distortions stem from common logical fallacies, while others result from the intertwining of cognitive and emotional aspects of being in the interpretation and judgment of various inputs. Some four decades ago, psychologist Aaron Beck launched the first study into cognitive distortions. In his research, he identified several common biases, including overgeneralization and catastrophizing. Independently, Israeli researchers Kahneman and Tversky launched prospect theory and studied people's responses to prospective losses and gains. The proponents of this theory discovered several cognitive biases interfering with the profit and loss calculus. The results of the study destabilized the absolutist assumption of human beings as rational agents, which is a crown assumption for the study of economics. Kahneman eventually earned a Nobel Prize in economics for his research, even though he's actually a psychologist. Various typologies of misguided thinking have been proposed since the pioneering research by Aaron Beck. Neurolinguistic programming grouped cognitive mistakes into three broad categories. Deletion, through selective attention, distortion, by misinterpretation of inputs, and generalization, via attribution of particular experience to an entire category. The Russo-Chinese anti-Western propaganda is exploiting our propensity for each of these three categories of biases. Some of this propaganda filters into the echo chambers of the extreme right. That's the case of Tucker Carlson and Marjorie Taylor Greene in the US, of the knuckleheads from Alternative für Deutschland in Germany, or Marine Le Pen in France.
They find also fertile ground with the extreme left. That's the case of Jeffrey Sachs and Noam Chomsky in the US, Die Linke in Germany, or whatever hardline grandchildren there may be of Georges Marchais and Arlette Laguillet in France. This is not to say that all these people deeply believe in the nonsense they profess. Some of them may also be incentivized to promote their biases on a broader arena. So we may not know if these examples are due to genuine conviction built on cognitive distortions or whether, in some cases, Chinese or Russian money speaks. So let us go through these three broad categories and lace them with some examples. Let me start with the first of the three categories, that is deletion. Deletion is an exercise in mental economy. First, much belief formation relies on deletion in general. By giving the overwhelming amount of information that humans must process, the inputs must be first um, decoded and filtered. This is achieved by ignoring certain details and by focusing selectively on others. The process of selective omission relies on recurrent shortcuts, two of which are particularly prevalent. The first one is called availability heuristic. And here we pay excessive attention to a particular fact or event if it's easier to recall. This may be because it's more visible, better publicized, or more recent, or simply fresher in our mind for some reasons. For example, because of the associated emotional content. Typically, we give too much weight to recent experiences, extrapolating trends which are often at odds with long-run averages or probabilities. For example, when Russian propagandist pushes back against the alleged Western neocolonialism, he or she exploits the fact that many people today remember George Bush's misguided adventures in Iraq better than the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. The second shortcut is the so-called representativeness heuristic. We have a tendency to treat events as representative of some previously identified class or pattern. This heuristic is used to judge similarity and membership in a class. This is essentially pattern spotting. Right? It gives us a, a sense of familiarity and bolsters the belief that we have diagnosed the issue. The mechanism doesn't deal well with randomness, for example, which may be actually a more prevailing feature in the universe than we are ready to admit. And according to this model, colonialism in Africa and Asia by Western powers is central to the concept of colonialism, while Russian colonialism of Central Asia or Eastern Europe, or for that matter, Ottoman Turkish colonialism in the Balkans, the Middle East or North Africa, are somewhat less central to the concept of colonialism. What are some concrete examples of deletion in the Russo-Chinese narrative? A perfect example is offered by the treatment of African history. In that version, the USSR was only good. Why? Because of Soviet influence at that time, which coincided with the decolonization effort. Soviets supported many leftist guerrilla movements, in particular in southern Africa, in Angola, Namibia, Mozambique, and Rhodesia. And, after a lost decade of the 1990s, Russia is back with weapons, again in Mozambique, but more often in West Africa, where the same Wagner group, which is accused of atrocities in Ukraine, is actively supporting military regimes, not least in Mali, which now votes in unison with Russia and the UN. Africans, therefore, are led to believe that the West was invariably bad and colonialist, while the USSR was good, helping them against the bad colonialists. Not a word here about the invasion of Hungary, or Czechoslovakia, or Afghanistan. And who cares about civilians bombed by Russia and Syria, or about 150,000 people killed in Chechnya? 
That's what deletion is. Inconvenient truths are cut out, irrelevant. By the same token, the political religion in South Africa is that African National Congress, the ANC, has always been good. Forget about endemic corruption, about Winnie Mandela's death squads in the townships, about political murders in South Africa and abroad, or about fights within Qatar. It's just good, period. Polarization is an extreme case of deletion. This is where the two ends of the continuum are presented as the only alternatives. No shades of gray, no nuance, no hesitation. The world in black and white, nothing in between. This often appears as a false binary choice foisted on geostrategic rivals. China is trying, maybe less successful these days, to paint Japan as a country stuck in the binary choice between pacifism, whereby it accepts China's dominance, and militarism, which led Japan to the ultimate catastrophe of 1945. It is, of course, a false dichotomy, but both the left and extreme right are prone to such polarizations. And, of course, most conspiracy theories are based on some form of deletion. Why? Because the world is a complex place. Global economic system is very complicated, and in times of crisis, when events accelerate, we do not see clearly through the fog. And... So, we are prone to simplifications, especially if our cognitive resources are limited. And they may be limited because of age, stress, fatigue, or group pressure. And so, simplistic explanations are preferred. In those explanations, all complexity is deleted, alternative hypotheses are not even considered, and very often one dark force pulls the strings. Historically, it was either the Jews, or the Freemasons, or the Vatican, or Goldman Sachs, or what have you. It's not to say that some of these groups are, or not, well-organized and maybe occasionally influential, but it's a long shot to claim their omnipotence, not to mention responsibility for all sorts of nefarious acts. Since the last great financial crisis, George Soros appears as this ultimate bogeyman, especially for the conspiratorial right. Soros, with his dirty fingers in every pie, magpie, and sci-fi. Which really must make him an extraordinarily busy man. I met him once, as well as his son, and honestly, I couldn't detect any superhuman qualities. But hey, he's Jewish, and Eastern European, and American, which makes him very, very suspect. Okay, so much for the deletion. The second broad category of cognitive bias is distortion. In its narrow definition, distortion is the process of misrepresenting sense data and modifying them by instantaneous interpretations of the input, for example, with implicit questions. Is it good or bad? What does it mean for me? Are they part of my tribe? The reasons for such misrepresentations are quite profound. Humans do not treat the surrounding reality as a set of unrelated objects. Rather, we advance for life by treating any identifiable object or fact as either a tool or an obstacle. Everything with an object hood is bent to our intentionality. Distortions are quite complex, and more complex than deletions, and we have plenty of examples in the Chinese and Russian propaganda. One common form of distortion operates by loosening the commonly accepted link between the signified and the signifier. Now, just to recall, the signified is the semantic content of a term, 
while the signifier is the material surface form, so the sound of a word or an image or even facial expression. Signifier expresses the signifying, right? The content. The paramount example these days is provided by the way in which Chinese media portrayed the Russian invasion. We all know that Russian media call it a special operation, and by using the term war, one risks between 5 and 15 years in jail. In China, the term adopted by the Communist Party is Ukrainian crisis. Weiji. Not a war, not an invasion, not a rape, but just a crisis. This way, China reverts to resolve the crisis. If you distort the accepted link between the signified and the signifier and then repeat the new link in a specific context a certain number of times, it begins to sink in and function as a newly accepted concept. This is, after all, how language evolves, how we expand our vocabulary, not only when we learn the foreign language, but also in our own language. A term such as chat GPT didn't exist in common everyday English six months ago. GPT, this acronym, may have surfaced as a signifier sometime before, but without any commonly accepted signified. Now it has it. Well, for the Chinese people, it's the same with Ukraine. No crimes, no tragedy, no death, no destruction, just a crisis. Wei Ji. Another form of distortion is creation of concepts with no correspondence to reality. We generate a signifier that doesn't just distort its common link to a signified, because there is no signified to start with. Such an example is China's peace initiative for Ukraine. It's um, generating facts by words. Of course, if Xi Jinping or Wang Yi actually do travel to Kiev to discuss it with Zelensky, the signified will cease to be empty. It will have some content. But let's not forget that Xi Jinping has refused to speak to his Ukrainian counterparts since the beginning of the war, while he has been in recurrent contact with Putin. Note the use of the signifier peace in the Chinese peace initiative. During Cold War I, the term peace was commonly abused by communists. The USSR encouraged its followers around the world to fight for peace. As if the oxymoronic nature of the two terms, fight and peace, somehow didn't jar. The cluster didn't mean anything by itself, but it did allow users to dig a rhetorical trench between the left, who were allegedly in favor of peace, and everyone else. And during the Cold War ceasefire, that is roughly between 1991 and 2022, Chinese communists professed the peaceful rise of China, a term containing another empty signified, given communist China's history of aggression against Korea, Tibet, India, Taiwan, Vietnam, and even the USSR. The third broad category of cognitive bias is generalization. Generalization is the process of making general conclusions about an event by attributing a single instance of experience to an entire category of possible events. This adaptive mechanism is useful in many learning processes and it speeds up belief formation. Epistemically, we live by categories, but ontologically there is no guarantee that any single experience actually belongs to a given category. In addition, the definition of what rules a given category or base may be incorrect. Rather than being mutually exclusive, for example, categories could have fuzzy boundaries and have various degrees of membership. On a personal level, generalizations may be responsible for stereotyping, for prejudice, and even certain phobias. And some form of generalization used in propaganda are very, very crude. One such example is whataboutism. When a South African expert was recently asked on Deutsche Welle 
why Pretoria can't condemn Russia's invasion, she answered by rolling out a rusty weapon of the leftists worldwide. But what about George Bush's and Iraq? Obviously, none of Bush's mistakes in Iraq or elsewhere justifies Putin's murders in Ukraine. But what aboutists are not sufficiently sophisticated to deal with this fact. Let me give you another example. When the Swiss authorities recently revealed that Moscow Patriarch Kirill was a KGB agent, my Putinist friend protested that this was an isolated case and certainly not corroborated. I quickly dug out a revelation from the 1990s that Kirill's predecessor, Alexei II, was also a KGB agent. In fact, you probably cannot run the so-called Orthodox Church in Moscow without being a secret policeman. It's like a precondition for the job. Hearing this, my Putinist friend felt sufficiently disarmed to fall into a very predictable whataboutism. He asked, And what about Pope Francis? How was he elected? Do we really believe it was a free election? Yes, I know you're chuckling. Uh, setting apart the issue of how prayers help with the outcome of the conclave, my dear friend forgot one important historical fact. Since at least 1077, so almost a millennium ago, when Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV atoned and asked Pope Gregory VII for forgiveness, the Western Church has been independent of the secular authorities. This bicephalism arguably helped with the development of alternative sources of power in the West and eventually paved the way towards the development of the rule of law. At least that's the view of eminent historians of government, such as S.E. Feiner or Francis Fukuyama. On the other hand, in the East, and that includes both Byzantium and Moscow, the system has been one of Caesar or Papers, whereby it is the secular authority that retained power over the ecclesiastical leadership, including appointments and oversight. No separation of the state and the church. There were some attempts to reform it in Russia, for example, by Patriarch Nikon in the 17th century, but they were crushed. In other words, in the East, the church has remained the branch of the government de facto, if not necessarily always de jure, uh, while in the West, the roles bifurcated half a lifetime ago for Christianity, half a lifetime ago. One common type of distortion is the free use of personal pronouns, like you, they, we. For example, the Chinese Communist Party is now commonly cloaking itself in the we of the global south. This is visible in point four of their so-called peace initiative for Ukraine. The they is finger-pointing at the irredentist West, in another point of the initiative, which criticizes Cold War mentality and exclusionary blocs. Russian neo-Stalinists are very good at this pronoun generalization. For example, the we of the anti-fascist struggle in the 1940s means Russians, which usually serves to transfer the numbers of Soviet war victims to ethnic Russia by putting the sign of equation between Soviet and Russian. But the same first-person plural pronoun looks very different when memory of Stalinist crimes is brought up. Then suddenly it's not Russian. Why? Because Stalin wasn't ethnically Russian, so it's not us. It, Georgians did it. Them. Another form of distortion is also detectable at the syntactic level. From the logical perspective, it involves the so-called composition fallacy. So say, if some Chinese people are rich, then Chinese people are rich, right? A good example is the pervasive Russian propaganda that paints Ukraine as hopelessly corrupt. It is effective because when my friend Greg, the co-author of this podcast, first got involved in the anti-war activity on the side of Ukraine a year ago, he was actually quite concerned about the risks to his image due to the commonly held view of Ukraine as being corrupt. Now, there is no doubt that there is corruption in Ukraine. 
as there is in Russia, China, or the United States. Uh, something we discussed with Greg on this show about a month ago or so. But to note that there are instances of corruption in a country X does not equate with the statement that the country is corrupt. When you hear someone generalizing such attributes and paint an entire country or a large category of people as such, be alert to the hidden political intention. In another but similar example, Ukraine's closest ally Poland often suffers from being labeled as anti-Semitic. Now, this stems from the true and tragic fact that anti-Semitism existed in Poland historically and to this day. Many people there held such views. But it's different from calling the entire nation anti-Semitic, which again betrays some specific political project. In this case, directed at a nation that has more righteous among nations at Yad Vashem than any other country. Many of such generalizations are cases of hasty induction. What does it mean to function inductively? It is when our brains use generalization to conclude a rule from few cases, or even from one case. Philosophers have long had problems with induction and advocated deduction instead. Still, the problem with syllogistic deduction, which is the opposite to induction, that is from general rule to a specific case, is that we don't actually learn anything new from that. On the other hand, if I see heavy clouds in the morning, I'm gonna take an umbrella. And that's what it means to function inductively, which is what we do in our life all the time. Induction is useful and can be based on solid assumptions. The problem we face when dealing with propagandists is that they love exploiting inductively weak cases. If Russians find a Ukrainian POW with questionable tattoos on his body, they are certain to exploit this. And this won't be to prove that this particular prisoner is a fan of, say, Black Sabbath, but rather the point will be that he's a Satanist and therefore the entire Ukraine nation is a nation of Satanists. This is actually a true case, as the Russian propaganda has now moved from denazification of Ukraine to desatanization of Ukraine and maybe even of Moldova. You would think that there are limits to hyperbole, but obviously there are not. Another example the other day, Russian TV also said about attacking Australia, a staunch ally of Ukraine. The reason? Some parent in Australia apparently took her child to watch a burlesque show. What is the inductive statement on the Russian TV? Look, the West is rotten. They force the LGBTQ, STRVPNS ideology on children here. We have to fight the West. We can't allow our children to be subject of the Western rot. So, a single case, captured and amplified by the propagandists, is projected inductively as representative for all of us Westerners. All of us or at least at all the wombats and roos gathering around billabongs down under. But beyond the quixotic antics of the domestic media in Russia, we can ask the question how come these narratives are so much more successful in some geographies than in others? Why is it that so many countries of the global south miss the simple truth about this war? That the world's largest country is attacking its smaller neighbor to take over its territory and destroy its people? Why is this simple truth too complex to appreciate? There may be many answers to it, but one of the reasons could be the relative ubiquity of the Russian and Chinese diplomatic outreach. Sergei Lavrov, excluded from the Western salons, has hit the African trail really hard in recent months, and Russia has maintained a very active diplomatic corps on the Black continent. By contrast, Ukraine has only five embassies in Africa and is no match for China's effort to paint the West in, well, black colors. But if Ukraine, with its limited resources, cannot really promote its vision of the world, maybe its allies could. 
And not even all allies. Let us assume for the moment that many West Africans would reject French advice. Indians are historically conditioned to reject the British view, and Indonesians are unlikely to listen to the Dutch. But the pro-Ukrainian alliance is not exclusively composed of former colonial powers. Countries such as Korea, Poland, Norway, or Canada can play an important role here. Despite whatever one can say about Poland's internal problems in recent years, the country remains one of Ukraine's staunchest allies and can maintain moral high ground in a debate with South Africa's shameless government. And it has arguments. Back in 1980, South Africa's GDP was 60% larger than Poland's, and many Poles emigrated to South Africa at that time. Today, Poland's GDP is 74% higher than South Africa's, and the joke goes that the Central European nation could take millions of persecuted Afrikaners to join the Ukrainian diaspora there. South Korea is an even better example that economic success does not have to be positively correlated with despotism, as is the case in China. In fact, most third world countries have more in common with Korea than with China in terms of their population, size, dependence on alliances, presence of external threats, and untapped potential. Seven decades ago, many of them were richer than South Korea. The problem with South Korea and with Poland is that both have been too obsessed with their immediate neighborhood, and for a good reason. North Korea and Russia, respectively, represent a clear and present danger. Both countries have a deeply embedded inferiority complex directed at another larger neighbor, whether it's Japan or Germany. But they are members of the international coalition and should do more outside of the region. Scandinavian countries are already doing this kind of job, and Japan remains the largest provider of ODA, soft power, and institution building in the Eastern Hemisphere. Today, the populations of poorer countries of South and Southeast Asia trust Japan much more than China, whose debt trap strategy has in recent years squeezed many of those economies. None of this means that the unwinding of the years of Chinese and Russian propaganda will be any easy. We may be aware of the biases, but like everyone else, we too fall into their pitfalls. Like everyone else, I myself am personally subject to cognitive distortions. My tendency is simply to reject, a priori, views that are fascist, communist, racist, anti-Semitic, white supremacist, black supremacist, sinocentrist, or any tribal centrist, Islamic terrorist, or any terrorist, Nazi, Jingoist, chauvinist, and such like, without giving it a second thought. I have to pay particular attention to pars between views, against which I can argue, and actions, which I condemn or even combat. And if I let my cognitive distortions delete, generalize, and distort, I may miss out on the extraordinary wealth of knowledge that the opposing views, even bigoted views, sometimes, and I stress sometimes, bring. It's often painful, always exasperating, and it's sometimes exhausting. But by remaining in touch with Russian and Chinese supremacists, by occasionally glancing at the gutter-level clownship of Marjorie Taylor Greene, I'm reminded of how the other side of the barricade functions. And honestly, they are not particularly smart. Now, why do we have to know what they think? And to answer this, let me close with a personal recollection. When in the depths of Stalinism, my mom was forced to study Russian language at school and rebelled against it, my grandmother admonished her. My dear daughter, you have to know your enemy. I think it's a lesson that hasn't lost its validity since the era of mankind's most murderous regimes. Have a great week.